most powerful storm. Jesus' teaching, life, death, resurrection, and rule impact everything in our world. From how we view children, the sick, political leaders, and ourselves, Jesus left an impact. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Caitlin Sizewerda. And my name is Kira, and we've both been going to First Colorville our whole lives. This is Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, you will not immediately pull it out. And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you, le when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Thanks, Kira and Caitlin. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we open your word, we thank you for it. We pray that your spirit will illumine our hearts as we wonder about your message for us and to us today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So we want to begin by noting one important thing about Jesus' impact on community, and that is that the problem with community is other people. The problem with community is other people. Every morning at about 8 o'clock, <clears throat> we leave the house and we walk next door to uh, the place where the bus stops to pick our kids up. And so we walk out of the garage, we walk down the sidewalk, and we walk next door, and there are typically uh, two other, sometimes three other families who, for whom this is the bus stop, and so the kids come over and uh, a parent will walk across the street, walk down the driveway, walk, uh, and so we'll sort of gather there. And uh, if I don't speak first, no one talks. 
So one of the things that we need to recognize when it comes to community is that God calls us to acknowledge the discomfort. One of the parents of the child, English is not her first language. So it's difficult to connect. We don't necessarily share a ton of similarities, but we do share children who have, a same, have the same bus stop. And so while we could just stand there, we could also try to talk. But we live in a world where it is much easier to pull up our smartphone and hit one click, use Amazon and have it delivered, never interact with the person who drops the box off at our doorstep. Most of us would prefer when we go to Meyer or Family Fair or DW, uh, even if the person checking out people is shorter, we would prefer to go to the scan and go. No eye contact is always better. After all, who wants to make small talk with someone that we may never see again? There's something about community, about connecting with people, that causes us discomfort. And it's because other people are different than us. And in this text, we watch as Jesus not only doesn't avoid the discomfort, but sort of walks right into it. Jesus has been given a, an invite to the house of a Pharisee. Now, we know from the Gospels that Pharisees are people that don't necessarily like Jesus. And the Gospel writer Luke tells us that this home that, that there, Jesus is going to uh, is a place where he is being watched. And when the story begins, it's not as if Jesus has knocked on the door or rang the doorbell and gone into the home. They are walking to this house together. And so there is not only the discomfort of having to go into the house and sort of give the coat. Do you hang up the coat yourself? Do you wear the coat? What if it's a little cold? Do you insult your host by wearing a coat? Uh, if you're hosting, do you turn your heat up? Well, maybe they have, you know, they're going through hot flashes, so you turn it down. You know, how do you do this? What's the, right? There's the discomfort here. And most of us, because of the discomfort, avoid it. And so we watch as Jesus acknowledges the discomfort, acknowledges the he's being watched, acknowledges that going to the house of someone who is opposed to him is going to be an uncomfortable situation. And on the way, they meet a, a man with suffering, and it causes an opportunity, or it, it highlights an opportunity to not only acknowledge the discomfort, but to do something about it. Because even in starting the message by saying the problem with community is other people, notes right away off the bat a truth that many of us don't like saying. I don't know what your home is like. I don't know what your movie watching experience is like. But in our house, there's six people. 
And six people have different likes and dislikes. And so when we grab the remote on a Friday night for movie night, it's impossible to pick something that we all want to watch. It's impossible. And there's only six of us. And unless your homes are idyllic, or your friendships are perfect, where you're going to Celebration Cinema to watch a flick together, you're going to have that similar experience, right? And the question becomes, who defers, who puts their own viewpoint forward? What does it mean if someone disagrees with us? How do we acknowledge the discomfort that being in situations with other people provides? What do we do with that? How do we acknowledge that? And the reason this is important for Christ followers, for the church, is that we do this intentionally every Sunday. Our chances are we sang a song this morning that you didn't particularly care for. And we do that on purpose. Tomorrow night, the worship planners are going to get together. There are four worship planners, and I usually join them, and we talk about all of the ways that we can help make church an uncomfortable experience. No, that's not true. But we do talk about the fact that we are trying to recognize that we have people coming from all kinds of different backgrounds. We have people who listen every day to WCSG, we have people who, who never listen to those stations, and so the, the, new, the newer songs aren't familiar. We have people who listen to the you know, Moody Bible, and so all they hear are, are older hymns. We have people who don't listen to any kind of Christian radio. They're listening to uh, you know, w, or, uh, WGRD every day, and so they're listening to a, a steady diet of, of modern rock. And so how do we embrace that discomfort in a way where we all acknowledge that part of the experience of coming to church is to say to each other, this feels odd. And that's a good thing. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just acknowledge the discomfort, but moves then in the midst of that to embrace humanity. So as the story tells us, Jesus is walking to the house of the Pharisee with the Pharisee, and they had come along this man. This man isn't in the home of the Pharisee, although the text is a little convoluted there. This man is either sitting outside of the home of this prominent Pharisee, hoping for a handout on the way in, or maybe... Uh, this prominent Pharisee lives in the center of town near the synagogue. And so as, the, as they walk together through the city, they come across this, this man. And we were in, in some ways encouraged to imagine the parable of the Good Samaritan where the prominent Pharisee is sort of thinking, okay, how do we avoid this situation so we can get into the meal and we can have a, a good conversation, just the two, you know, the, sort of the, among the rabbis, among the important people. But of course, Jesus doesn't allow for that. He sees someone laying there in pain, in discomfort, and so calls attention to it. And there's nothing worse than a person who calls uh, attention to the discomfort. 
right? There's, there's nothing worse than uh, getting together with, with 10 friends and you're all having a great meal. There's been appetizers and drinks and you've, you've shared some meals and then that horrible moment comes when the check arrives. And now what do we do? And the cheap people among us are thinking, okay, uh, my meal was, was $17.99. I ate two pieces, uh, two pita chips for the spinach and artichoke dip. That's going to be about 75 cents. Right? And, and others of us are like, ah, oh, I'll just pick it up. And then there's that person in the, who's sort of sitting around the table and says, ha this is fun, isn't it? How much better for a person to say, isn't this odd and isn't it wonderful that we get to have this uncomfortable experience of figuring out how to pay? Because not everyone gets to do that. And one of the things that we've learned over the last two years, it's been two years now of pandemic life, what a gift going out to eat with other people is. And embracing the humanity of those moments, of elevating the things that maybe make us a bit discom- uh, uncomfortable, things which cause us a little bit of awkwardness and yet uh, help us to see the variety God has put into the world. Quick commercial break here. Quick commercial break. There's a theological reason for us to embrace the humanity of one another and find commonality. That's our next point. And the reason for that is we worship an infinite God. Right? A God whose characteristics and qualities go on this way forever and who go on this way forever. And that means that people who bear his image do not have an infinite number of characteristics and qualities, but certainly have an incredibly wide range of personality characteristics. And so if we're only looking at a small portion of other people to see what we share in common, we should remember that if we worship an infinite God who creates us in his image, we should look a little harder to find the things that God uniquely endowed each person with as a way of reflecting our infinite creator God. And so Jesus is walking along with the Pharisees and he meets this man and he asks the Pharisees this question, right? They're on the way and and the Pharisee is thinking about the meal. He's thinking about the place at the table. How do we get to that moment where we're in our right spots? And Jesus is holding up this guy who's in pain, who's struggling, and he highlights that people are so much more important than the process. That people are so much important than sort of the the getting to the meal and the getting into it. 
And so Jesus heals this man. And the man goes on his way. And the Pharisee and the other meal guests have nothing to say. They're, they're uncomfortable. And it's worth noting that these two things come together, right? These two events, this walk to the house and the uncomfortable conversation about the guy laying there, and then the conversation in the house as Jesus is sort of looking at the table, trying to figure out where to sit. And notice that everybody else is already sitting. I really wanted to ask the kids this morning, do you have a place where you always sit in church? But I thought that might hit a little close to home for some of us. But Jesus sort of highlights that. He says when you're with people, one of the things that we do is we immediately try to figure out Who lies where? Who finds themselves in what spot on the hierarchy? Earlier this week, one of our uh, children had a test on uh, fiefdom. So go back to your sixth grade social studies where society was organized around uh, serfs and vassals and lords and kings. And in that system, everybody kind of knew their place, right? If you were born a serf or to uh, parents who were serfs, you were going to be a serf. And if you were born a lord, you would get to stay a lord. And everybody sort of knew their place. And everybody kind of knew how to define and understand where each person's place was in society. And there's something in our own hearts and in our own heads that continues to try to do this, right? We, we look around and see what other people are wearing. We see what people are driving. We see how people carry themselves. We, we watch how, who interacts with who. And there's sort of this game that we play. Where do people fall in the pecking order? How do we know who's important? How do we know who matters? How do we know who's connected to who? How do we cozy up to them? How do we, there's sort of this sense of, of doing that. And of course, in doing that, the dark side, the shadow side, is to highlight the difference. It's to highlight the things that separate us. If those are the players, and we see that other people are cozying up to them, and we're not connected to them, where does that put us? If we look in the mirror and we know we're not vassals, or lords, or kings, or queens, it means we're serfs. So now what? And yet as Jesus sits around the table and he looks at this table and he notices all of the seats around the table, he immediately points out and says, don't think about where you should or should not deserve to sit. Wait. Stand and hold your appetizer plate and your glass until the host comes and says, here's your plate. Now, the beautiful thing about that in the church 
is that our host is Christ Himself. And the table is one that spreads out all the way in that direction and all the way in that direction. And God is somehow not at the head of the table and everybody who's important gets to sit down there. And Jesus is at the foot of the table and everybody important sits down there. But God is somehow able to be present with every person sitting at the table equally. That's an amazing thought. Really, that's an amazing thought. Just think about that for a moment. That when we're gathered around the the communion table, when we're gathered around the table of fellowship, it's not as if God at the head of the table, there's a few of us who are a little closer, a little closer to the cross and the empty tomb, a little closer to salvation, a little closer to receiving the grace and the mercy, that the bread closer to God is just a little better. No! God in his grace and mercy says to each and every one of us, my table, my table where I host, every one of you has a place of honor. When someone invites you to a wedding place, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Sort of a human, think human meal. When you're invited, take the lowest place so when your host comes, they'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. We're encouraged, as Jesus says this, to to hear Jesus saying this to us. To hear Jesus say to us, you imagine that at a table, like the, the Lord's Supper, at the table of the Lord, at the place of fellowship with God, that our place is at the end. We're sinners after all. And Jesus says, when I come to you, I'm going to say, friend, friend, I love you. I have loved you since the foundation of the world. Come and sit in the place of honor. And if that is what Jesus says to each one of us, that allows us to be humble about the way in which we see one another. because I don't need to worry about stepping on your shoulders or on your back to feel better about myself. I don't need to figure out where I am on that social hierarchy or in the serfdom kingdom. Because Jesus comes and he says, friend, come and sit in the place of honor. There are no better chairs in worship. Most of us know that, right? It's not like you get closer to the front, more holiness, because most of you sit in the back. But sitting in the back doesn't mean we're closer to holy either, right? There's, there's no seat in this space or in any worship space which God says is the place of honor. We are all humble and equal at the foot of the cross. And in that we find commonality with each other. We're able to find commonality with that man who has the bloated stomach and in need of healing. And we're able to find commonality with the prominent Pharisee who imagines they are closer to the head than they really are. 
because we are secure in the invitation of Jesus to say, friend, come and sit in the place of honor. And so we can acknowledge the discomfort, we can embrace humanity, we can find commonality with each other, and we can also hope toward possibility. The church of Jesus Christ, because we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to do more together than we can apart. Now that sounds obvious. But I came across a study I had put in my notes from a while back, and I just want to share this with you. This is an article that's 10 years old. It's from the Philadelphia Inquirer, not the National Inquirer, the Philadelphia Inquirer, who did a study on the economic impact in Philadelphia of 12 churches. Okay, so this study is looking at how churches' uh, economic impact on the poor, on clothing the needy, on mentoring in schools, on where giving goes, on property values, the economic impact across the neighborhood of a dozen churches. There's a dozen churches in Byron Center, or Cutlerville, or Wyoming, or Moline, maybe not in Moline, but wherever we're living, we live near a dozen churches. And the study from 10 years ago found $50 million of economic impact. That's crazy. Twelve churches had a $50 million positive economic impact on their neighborhoods. Because together the body of Christ is able to do way more together than we could ever do apart. We need our fellow churches to keep Beist Community Ministries open. We need heritage to help us do kids' hope to the best we can. We need Byron or Banner of Christ. We need First Byron. We need Second Byron. We need all of these congregations together to help us to do together what we cannot do alone. And think about that for just a moment. There's a dozen churches in Byron Center area And we're maybe not going to have a $50 million economic impact. But if we start thinking about the township budget, the area budget, the church of Jesus Christ in working together, in being the body of Christ, in being the hands and the feet, in recognizing our commonality, our shared humanity, the, the place that Christ has given to us, and our invitation to others the kind of impact we can have together. And so when you're walking around your neighborhood, embrace the discomfort of not knowing their names and make the first move. Find somebody you don't know, intentionally order 
in person at Chick-fil-A. Don't do the drive-through. Have a conversation. Take the long line. Admire. When it's warm enough, roll your window down so you can wave and say hi at the person who cut you off. And in doing that, the impact of the Spirit and the life of Christ in and through us may just be more profound than we could ever imagine.